Well, you know something? It's the 4th of April. I am sitting here at Coffee for Good in the Solomon Mead House on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, looking outdoors at some of the most beautiful blue skies that I have seen in quite a long time and enjoying temperatures that are approaching 70 degrees. Well, all the more reason why it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 4th of April, 2023 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm, I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640, and since its humble beginnings, the town has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, or whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. And especially on a day like this, you are a part of our history, and we send our congratulations. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, the Greenwich and Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Sight Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, along with this really, truly beautiful, great day, we've got a great show for you. So without any further delay, let's get started. Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our journey takes us to the Greenway Estate, known as Kincraig, and in the early years of the 21st century as Copper Beach Farm, built in 1898 on the shores of the Mianus River and Long Island Sound. Its principal owner was Harriet Lauder Greenway. Guess what, my friends? This estate is for sale, and it can be yours for $150 million. <laughs> All right, on Greenwich Life as it is and was, columnist Lucian Edwards published a piece a century ago about Easter Sunday and how it was observed in Greenwich, Connecticut. On Easter Sunday, 1923, the cold temperatures were so intense that it prevented the trumpet player at the top of the Second Congregational Church at Steeple from playing the anthem, I Know That My Redeemer Liveth. <laughs> as we continue to mark the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, I'll share news of burglaries or arrests and crimes committed and recorded throughout Greenwich's history. On Greenwich Before 2000, we'll go back in time to the year 1949. You'll also hear about the first brick house in Greenwich, how Maurice Wertheim of Greenwich was nearly killed at the Greenwich Railroad Depot in 1914, a dinner of the Connecticut Men's League for Women's Suffrage at the Greenwich Country Club, a new residential park in Riverside in 1908, the wedding of French Interior Minister Clemenceau to Mary Plummer of Greenwich in 1906, and a well-known traveler in Greenwich who wrote about China a century ago. Well, there's lots to see, to do, and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'll share news of gatherings and public events, 
More Than Just a Game is a new exhibit at the Greenwich Historical Society, and we'll have more. My friends, go see it. It's a great exhibit. I think you'll enjoy it. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American Diplomatic Corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.com. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595, Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office, at 203-485-7595. Well, my friends, it's that time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's storied history to the Gilded Age, 
When wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, the greatest state's Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book was published. It is richly illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed history about the emergence of the greatest state during the Gilded Age. It's a book that I strongly recommend. On today's show, we're going to take you to a greatest state that If you'd like, it could be yours for $150 million, that is. (laughs) And I'm referring to Kingraig, also known as Copper Beach Farm. Now, the principal owner was Harriet Lauder Greenway. The architect is not known. The construction date was 1898. And the story goes as follows. The Greenway estate, known as Kingraig, dates back to 1893 when John Hamilton Gurley, one of the original settlers of Belhaven, purchased the first parcel of land from Ephraim, Spencer, Thomas, and Amos Mead. The property was located on Long Island Sound at the mouth of the Mianus River. Gurley, a native of New York City, was with the firm of Johnson & Higgins, insurance brokers and adjusters. Five years after he purchased his Meads Point property, he built the first and largest part of the mansion, which, which remains today. However, his health began to deteriorate at, at about that time, and in 1900 he left the United States to travel abroad. When he returned, he announced to his four children that he had married his nurse in London, because, quote, the marriage was said to be disliked by the children, unquote, the New York Times wrote. Friends tried but failed to have the Greenwich Probate Court appoint a conservator to manage his financial affairs. In 1904, the eccentric millionaire, quote-unquote, died in his early 50s, leaving no will. As if to prove his eccentricity, his obituary in the New York Times ends with the observation that, quote, Mr. Gourley's two cottages at Belhaven have been closed for two years because the millionaire declared he was wealthy enough without renting them, unquote. His son and three daughters were subsequently given title to his property. The next year, Harriet Lauder Greenway, who lived from 1879 to 1959, entered the picture. Gurley's heirs sold her his 57-and-a-half-acre property with its house. She added to it with further purchases of land in 1909, 1910, and 1921. And at its peak, the estate encompassed over 100 acres, including shoreline, both on the Sound and the northeastward, and northeastward along the Mianus River. The Greenways and their children enjoyed it thereafter for more than three-quarters of a century. Harriet Greenway was a member of the Lauder family, well-known in Greenwich and Pittsburgh, where her father, George Lauder, had been the co-founder with Andrew Carnegie of the Carnegie Steel Company, now U.S. Steel. Thus, she could afford to create such an estate to make adjustments and additions at will, and to maintain the lifestyle it made possible. Her husband, Dr. James Greenway, was a well-known physician who left the staff of New York Hospital in 1915 to found the Department of Health at Yale, where he remained until his retirement in 1935. 
Until that time, the family used the Meads Point home only as a summer house. But as there was no longer any need to live in New Haven, it was winterized and became their year-round residence. In 1912, the Greenways had added two wings to Gourley's original building, thereby creating the magnificent neo-French Renaissance mansion that remains today. Built of stone and clapboard with a slate roof, it is sophisticated and elegant, and, though made of American materials, has the formality of a French manor house. The tree-lined driveway leads past the stucco and gray clapper gatehouse, which echoes the style of the main building. At the entrance of that great house, two massive round stone towers covered with ivy flank the front door, and two projecting stone gargoyles with slender necks appear to peruse the visitor. A large paneled entry hall leads straight from the door through the center of the house and out to the true focus of the place, the magnificent panorama of water and sky seen from the porches. Facing Long Island Sound, this most spectacular side of the house overlooks formal gardens, sweeping lawns, and steps leading down to the beach. Seen from the water, the peaked slate roofs, the flared eaves, the charming dormer windows with pointed arches, and the many balconies are reminiscent of the grand French chateaus. There are 25 rooms in the house, 14 of them bedrooms, which required a staff of at least eight people to cook, launder, do the housekeeping, and otherwise serve the Greenway family. The first floor has a formal atmosphere with its wide staircase and carved banisters, large fireplaces, paneled dining room, and embossed ceilings. The serving kitchen is off the dining room, while the immense main kitchen is on the lower level. A dumbwaiter carried the food and dishes between floors. Behind the dining room, in one of the wings, added by the greenways, there is a squash court. Other main floor rooms include a large living room, a library with exceptionally fine paneling, an oval study, and a sizable solarium with a for the fountain. The second floor contains a master suite and six more bedrooms. The third has four family bedrooms and a wing with maids' rooms. The brightly papered bedrooms, many of which have fireplaces and sleeping porches, created an atmosphere of country living for that is what it was then. Some of the Greenway children remember playing games and hiding in the uppermost attic. A trapdoor there leads to the rooftop, and from this spot they watch many Fourth of July celebrations. This estate, as was true with many others in Greenwich during this period, was a working farm. Vegetables were grown for the whole family, and the orchards produced abundant fruit. Chickens, pigs, dogs, and ponies abounded. A pet pig belonging to one of the children was named Gloria Gump Gump. <laughs> there are a number of outbuildings, the most notable of which is the former stable, now a garage, built primarily of stone and forming a horseshoe shape around the courtyard. A central clock tower crowned its entrance. A gatehouse, two poultry sheds, a hay barn with a silo, a greenhouse, a manure shed, and an, octab an octagonal stone beach house are also on the property. King Craig was a spectacular setting 
for the Greenway's many interests and activities, and they enjoyed their life there immensely. Horseback riding through the many trails on the grounds was a popular pastime. Many hours were spent playing on the tennis court. The beautiful beach was fine for picnics, as no doubt were several of the small islands they owned offshore, and family sailboats were moored in the sound. The children liked to give plays on the porches for the enjoyment of family members, and these sometimes became quite elaborate productions. The Greenway's daughter even had her own little two-bedroom playhouse in which she learned to cook. Summer spent in such a green and sun-drenched spot must have an almost storybook quality about them today. Gardening was one of Harriet Greenway's strong interests, and the magnificent beech trees which she planted many years ago still grace the property. A superintendent of the grounds managed the greenhouse and directed as many as six full-time gardeners. The lovely gardens were the setting for family weddings and many parties. Time, however, does not stand still, and with its passage, the estate has not remained intact. Harry Greenway gave land first to their daughter Anna, then to the Indian Field School. Property was lost to the railroad and to the Connecticut Turnpike. When Mrs. Greenway died, she left the rest of the property to their three sons and daughter. Dr. Greenway continued to live in the house with their son Louder, a patron of the arts who has made his name almost synonymous with culture. Perhaps Lauder Greenway's most abiding interest was the Metropolitan Opera, which he served in various capacities for almost 40 years. His mother had filled the stately house with noted opera singers such as Madame Emma Emmas Martinelli and De Luca. He in turn invited great operatic performers there to dine, but not to perform. Quote, I want them to get the fresh air of the country in their lungs, the nutmaker has quoted him as saying. Dr. Greenway died in 1976, six months before his 100th birthday. Lauder died in 1981 at Kincraig, where he was born in 1904. The house with its remaining 50 acres was sold two years later for $7.5 million. The Greenway family will be remembered in Greenwich for their generosity in giving Island Beach, also known as Little Captain Island, to the town and for donating its first ferry boat as well. The minutes of the town meeting of October 24, 1918, report that Island Beach is, quote, to be held by the town of Greenwich in perpetuity as a recreational park and bathing beach for the use and benefit of the citizens of Greenwich, unquote. The Great Estate, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book by the Junior League of Greenwich is available for borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library System. You can go to your favorite or your nearest branch of the Greenwich Library, or you can go online and visit GreenwichHistory.org. Now, if you would like to acquire a copy, my recommendation would be to visit the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store at GreenwichHistory.org, or you can call 203-869-6899, or you could also contact your favorite book vendor. The 
most kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted best coffee shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own, a popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Sports more than just a game has opened at the Greenwich Historical Society as of March 8th, 2023. Uh, you can learn more about it and get more details at GreenwichHistory.org. Now, sports play an essential role in American life, with many of our closest bonds and memories rooted in a shared appreciation of athletes and teams, the rivalries, star athletes, trophies, and accolades that characterize modern American sports reflect the many facets of American life. Sporting history is a social history, and the development of sports and athletic culture in Greenwich and its surrounding communities reflects the broader history of the region. Sports More Than Just a Game is an exhibition featuring exclusive memorabilia, equipment, and personal effects from celebrated sports figures and everyday athletes who broke barriers, tested their limits, and found common ground through athletics. Reflecting the vibrant history of local sporting clubs and leagues and the notable legacy of prominent athletes making their homes in Greenwich, the exhibition and its related adult and family programs tell a rich story of sporting culture viewed through a historical lens. Now, to learn more about this, please go to GreenwichHistory.org, or you could also call for more information at area code 203-869-6899. The First Congregational Church of Old Greenwich invites you to enjoy two free self-guided online history tours. These are really fantastic. The church was founded in 1665, incidentally, by my ancestors, among others, one tour is of the church cemetery, the one that is located off of Sound Beach Avenue. The other is a tour of the wonderful stained glass windows of the church 
located in Old Greenwich. You know, they tell quite a story about the influences that culminated in driving some people from Europe to America. And in the chapel, they tell the story of the landing of the settlers here in the year 1640 and the development of the first church in Greenwich, Connecticut. You can learn more by going to the First Congregational Church's website, which is fccog.org. When you see the menu at the top, go to About Us and then look under the items under Our History, and you will see our self-guided audio tours, and um, you can look at those from your smartphone, from your laptop, whatever the case may be. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, it's time for Greenwich Life as it is and was. This is a column that was uh, published in the Greenwich News and Graphic a century ago. The piece that I have uh, to share with you today is by Lucian B. Edwards. And appropriately, because Easter is coming up very quickly, it is about Easter Sunday and how it was observed in Greenwich uh, back in history and um, now observed. And by that now being um, the end of March of 1923, so literally a century ago. And the story goes as follows, thanks to Mr. Edwards. Easter was not so generally observed in Greenwich 35 years ago as it is at the present time. Easter costumes were little thought of by the majority of the residents, and new spring suits, hats, and gowns were the exception rather than the rule. In the Episcopalian and Catholic churches of Greenwich, the important service of Lent and Easter really began on Palm Sunday, when the members of those churches were especially interested in the services coming home, as now, from church with pieces of palm in their hands and continued their increased religious zeal by large attendance at the several church services held uh, held the town uh, or the week following during Holy Week. The governor of the state has, has been the custom since the early days of the Commonwealth, issued his fast day proclamation annually, appointing Friday preceding Easter, Good Friday, day as a day of fasting and prayer, and his proclamation had been read from the pulpits of all the churches. In the churches other than the Episcopalian and Catholic, special fast day services were held in those days, were well attended, the pastors usually endeavoring to preach sermons in which they had put extra thought, research, and work. In the Episcopalian and Catholic churches, the Good Friday services were, as at the present time, more solemn than the usual church services, impressing on the members the greatest occurrence in the Christian faith. The attendance at Christ Episcopal and St. Mary's Catholic churches were very large, and the streets of the village had the quiet of the New England Sabbath, so noticeable in Greenwich on Sundays in those days. Little preparation for the observance of Easter was made in the other churches, and it was not until some 25 years ago that the elaborate and beautiful services that now were held uh, in them really began. Greenwich was largely congregational, as was all the state of Connecticut, and the simplicity of the congregational church was the dominating religious influence, the simplicity being a noticeable feature of the interior of churches, which had little or no decorations in them. 
but in Christ's Episcopal and St. Mary's Catholic Churches, special preparation for bright and joyous observance of Easter Sundays were made. Beautiful flowers adorned the interior of the church edifices, and the services were made as attractive as possible. The collections usually for the poor of the churches, as at the present time, being very large at the several services held on Easter Sunday. There were no fine, there were no fine musical features of the services, as the churches had no big organs or fine chorus then, but the congregation sang Easter hymns with a fervor seldom observed in the singing by the congregations in those days. Previously, there had been a volunteer choir. That occurred the little, the little choir loft in the rear of Christ Church, but this had been given up, and the small organ placed near the chancel with the presenter led the, with the presenters singing, led the singing. Miss Cordelia Palmer, daughter of Devon Palmer, one of the prominent men of the church, was the organist, and under her direction the Easter music was rendered. It was not until Mrs. Carl E. Martin, who succeeded Miss Palmer, was engaged to direct the music in Christ Church, that the music in the church became a noticeable part of the services. Mrs. Martin, who was the organist, organized a choir of quartet and chorus and every Easter as well as at Christmas. Mrs. Martin and her choir rendered music that was the equal of that to be heard in large city churches. And besides, her choir occasionally sang from oratorio that attracted attendance from members of other churches. And from that time, the musical part of the services in the other churches were greatly improved and fine singing was to be heard in them. The Second Congregational Church installing a splendid organ that afforded opportunity for that increased musical attraction in that church, and a quartet of trained singers were, were as employed, and some exceedingly beautiful musical services have been held in that church since then, the prominent Easter music also being a prominent part of their special Easter services, a conspicuous feature of which for a number of years had been the daylight service on Easter Sunday morning. At St. Mary's Catholic Church, the Easter music then was a conspicuous part of the service, though the congregation did not have the organ or musical advantages of the present day. The music was under the direction of Miss Anna Doran, and she was successful in making it a pleasing part of the services. The Methodist Episcopal Church, which was the only other village church at the time, little attention was given to Easter Sunday observance until recent years, when the services of that church also have been arranged for Easter Sunday, the music and services being prepared with special reference for the day. In the churches of the town outside the village, Easter Sunday services now are made the most beautiful and important of the year. Sermons are prepared with more care. There are extensive floral decorations, almost all of them, and the music is made an important part of the services. Even the automobiles, with all their hilariting attractions for their devotees, fail to keep many of their owners and families away from church services on Easter Sunday. And the attendance at all the church services is very large, so much so that some in the churches that 
there is hardly seating room. This Easter, the church services will be fully, if not more elaborately than usual, rehearsing of the music having been going on for some time, and there is certain to be a profusion of flowers and everything about the churches, making them attractive for the Easter services. In former years, many Greenwich residents went to New York City on Easter Sunday to attend services in some of the big churches, crowded with fashionable city congregations and then taking part in the parade down Fifth Avenue, which was one of the sights worth seeing in the metropolis. They do not go to New York so much for that purpose as they did, for they have sights at home, big if not fashionable congregations, and if it is a pleasant Sunday, there is quite a parade of well-dressed folks up and down Putnam Avenue. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, you know, as I'm looking outdoors with all the beautiful blue skies and very, very warm temperatures, I believe it's about 70 degrees right now, uh, the story that I have for you right now is, in at least um, <laughs> weather-wise, is a bit of a, um, of a contrast. It's a rather um, amusing story in its own way, and this dates literally from 100 years ago. It was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, April 6, 1923. And the headline on this is Music Froze in the Horn. Intense cold prevented cornetist from playing anthem in church spire. And, <laughs> uh, um, well, let me just read this to you. Um, and this took place at the Second Congregational Church over at 139 uh, East Putnam Avenue. A unique incident occurred at the Easter sunrise service at the Second Congregational Church last Sunday morning at 5.46 o'clock a.m., I would say, when the trumpet played by Professor Willie of Kearney's Band and Orchestra, Stamford, froze, so he was unable to continue the selection. <laughs> Could you imagine? Could you imagine that happening at a sunrise um, Easter service? Anyway, on with the story. With F. P. Kearney, leader of the band and orchestra, Professor Willie, and that's spelled W-I-L-L-I. That's how I'm pronouncing it. Willie climbed the steps leading to the spire, and from the belfry, that would be literally, my friends, I have to cut in. That would be literally up at the top where the outdoor bell is. The the steeple of the Second Congregational Church is 212 feet tall, just to, to let you know. I don't think that, that includes the um, uh, the very, very top, the weather vane, but um, anyway, it's quite... I've been up there, and um, it, it can be quite windy, and it can be quite cold, uh, and I could imagine what um, Professor Willie would have gone through. But anyway, Professor Willie climbed the steps leading to the spire, and from the belfry began to play, quote, 
I know that my Redeemer liveth, unquote, it having been arranged to render this beautiful number from Handel's Messiah to the north, south, east, and west. The thermometer on the ground below was at that time hovering around 10 above zero, and it was even colder in the belfry. I'll bet. Professor Willie had finished only the first strain when the moisture from his breath froze, causing ice to form in the stops, and he was unable to reach one of the high notes. He made a second attempt, but his efforts proved futile. The 200 or more persons who were assembled on the grounds below, led by Frederick C. Studwell, picked up the refrain and sang the chorus. Well, that's good. (laughs) Anyway, hymns were sung to the rising sun, and Reverend Dr. Oliver Huckle gave a salute to the sun, which was most impressive. Resurrection hymns were then sung in the graveyard adjoining the church. The interest manifested in the service was evidenced by the large number of attendants in spite of the cold weather. This was the program. At the foot of the spire, the hymn was, Christ the Lord is risen today. Greeting, ending with the ancient salutation, The Lord is risen, and the response, The Lord is risen indeed. Trumpet, high up on the spire. Quote, I know that my Redeemer liveth, lives from the Messiah, played to the east, the south, the west, the north. Him by all the people at the foot of the spire, led by the cornet, I know that my Redeemer lives. Unquote. Holy Scripture from Mark 16, quote, At the rising of the sun. It was a prayer, salutation to the sun, symbol of the rising Lord. Unquote. Psalm 24, lift up your heads, ye gates, or O ye gates, sorry. Meditation on the risen Lord and the life immortal, followed by a hymn, crown him with many crowns. And in the churchyard, Holy Scripture from 1 Corinthians 15, now is Christ risen. Remembrance of the dead who are alive forevermore, hymn for all the saints, and then the Easter benediction. And that, my friends, happened on a very, very, very cold Easter morning uh, 100 years ago, when this was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic, on Friday, April 6, 1923. But wait, we're not quite done. In that same edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic, published on Friday, April 6, 1923, there was, in the editorial page, uh, the following... And the, um, uh, the headline is Those Frozen Notes, and it goes as follows. The catastrophe, if you, well, if you could call that, but that's what the editorial says, the catastrophe that overtook the sunrise trumpet salute to the Easter sun from the spire of the Congregational Church last Sunday morning with the mercury hovering around zero when the trumpet blown by Professor Willie was taken with a violent chill and every foot froze fast in it was not without precedent. And if later in the day the instrument thawed out, liberating the icebound harmony and filling the professor's boudoir with the inspiring strains of a sacred anthem, that would not be without precedent either. Long years ago, according to a Litchfield County tradition, a resident in the northwest corner of the of that altitudinous region found 
on one bitter cold day that the smoke had frozen solid in his chimney, and he was obliged to go up on the roof with an axe and chop it out in chunks. His daughter went into the parlor and played a tune on the piano, but the music froze in, and no sound came forth until later in the day, when the weather moderated, thought out the instrument, and released the notes, and behold, all at once, of its own accord, it began to play the cold storage music that the damsel had executed in pantomime a few hours before. The man kept, the man kept on, uh, out on the front porch and cursed and kicked at the stray dog that had sought refuge there, but both kicks and curses were caught fast enough by the grip of Jack Frost and were loosened by the genial rays of old Saul in the middle of the afternoon, just in time to kick the minister off the porch and blister his eardrums with scorching invective, the good man having come around to make a pastoral call. <laughs> there you go. There's good news regarding cemeteries in the town of Greenwich, especially neglected ones. Uh, this story comes from Greenwich Free Press. It is dated the 1st of April, 2023. On Thursday, Governor Ned Lamont announced his administration would award state grants to 41 municipalities across Connecticut to provide maintenance to neglected burying grounds and cemeteries. Quote, cemeteries are sacred places, and maintaining them is essential out of respect for the dead and preserving our local heritage, Governor Lamont said in a release. Particularly here in Connecticut, we have some of the oldest and most historic cemeteries in the nation. These state grants will provide municipalities with financial support to ensure that the deceased are remembered in a respectful manner. Now, Alex Pop, who has volunteered to take care of the cemetery in Byram, this is, of course, the, the old Byram Cemetery on Byram Shore Road, said there are many hands involved in securing the grant, including Tyler Fairbairn, Tyler Fairbairn, Sarah Kukaro, and the Conservation Commission. Quote, we are fortunate to receive this generous grant from the state, he said. I'm referring to Alex Pop, of course. The plan is to hire a professional restorer with experience in cemetery preservation to straighten, lift, and clean several of the gravestone markers that are in immediate need, unquote. Mr. Pop said that the long-term goal is to draft and start to implement a master plan to care for the cemetery. Let's see, the story goes on. Hopefully the town can fund a small annual allowance to keep progress moving forward, he added. The grants, which total $5,000 each, are being released under the state's Neglected Cemetery Account Grant Program, which is administered by the Connecticut Office of Policy and Management. Established in 2014, this program is funded by revenue collected by the Connecticut Department of Public Health from the issuance of death certificates. Grants may be used by the municipalities to support basic maintenance of cemeteries, including the clearing of weeds, briars, and bushes, mowing of the ground's lawn areas, repairing the ground's fences or walls, and straightening, repairing, and restoring memorial stones. Now, the follow, there's a list, um, I, I should uh, mention here, of municipalities that have been selected to receive a grant, and it is contingent upon the successful submission and approval of required contractual documents. And one of those municipalities is the town of Greenwich. We're very, very pleased uh, to hear about that. Um, this is really great news uh, for those of you in particular in Byram, 
And uh, also, we would like to send our congratulations and our deepest thanks to Alex Pop and to his family uh, for all that they have done to um, uh, maintain and preserve the old Byram Cemetery, the smaller Lion Cemetery, which is um, you know off to the side, and of course the African American Cemetery, historically called the Colored Cemetery. Um, that is one that is um, uh, located uh, down uh, the hill. Uh, so this is really great news, and we send our um, our best of luck and congratulations and our thanks to all concerned. And um, if there's anything that we can do here at Greenwich Town for All Seasons, um, we are delighted to uh, to be a part of that. Spring is in the air at the Greenwich Historical Society Museum store at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob. The shelves are bursting with colorful new arrivals that are perfect for Easter baskets, seasonal home decoration, and hostess gifts, and a whole lot more. Now, if you can't go there in person, well, you can order online and you can have it shipped directly to you. Isn't that a fantastic thing? I certainly think it is. What else do we have here? Oh, yes, all gifts come with free gift wrapping provided by the museum store staff. The uh, store is located, as I said, at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob. That's um, over on the Bush Holly House campus. Uh, the museum store hours are Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Saturday and Sunday noon to 4 p.m. on those weekend days. Um, oh, you know what? I have something else that I would like to share with you. This is really, really terrific. Now, if you have known me even for a few minutes, <laughs> you probably know that one of my big passions in life, and, and it's a necessity, quite frankly, is a cup of coffee. Well, I have really good news. The, uh, the staff over at the museum store have told me that in Toby's Tavern, um, which is located uh, directly next to the museum store, um, you can get free on-site coffee and tea. It's self-service. It is um, first come, first served. Um, and, um, you know, it's a great place to have meetings, to get together with friends. Um, also, you know what? They have free Wi-Fi, which is really, uh, with me in particular, a very, very important thing uh, to have. So please go over and uh, shop at the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store. Have a, a nice free cup of uh, coffee or tea. It's self-service, as I mentioned, free Wi-Fi. Seating is limited, so it is first come, first serve. Now, speaking of the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store, well, it's got more than just Easter gifts, i got to tell you that. Um, they have, um, let's see, they have books, they have um, you know, games and puzzles, they have a kid's corner, bath and beauty products, they have products for him, products for her, jewelry, um, let's see, greeting cards and boxed notes. Um, did I mention books? Yes, I think I, uh, I did. Over in um, the home and garden section, they have some really wonderful um, uh, things that you can uh, purchase for yourself. Uh, mugs, let's see, salad bowls, pillows, towels, uh, let's see, napkins, all sorts of, um, of things like that. My friends, uh, the Greenwich Historical Society's Museum Store is located at 47 Strickland Road in Kosgob on the Bush Holly House campus of the Greenwich Historical Society. Uh, for more information, you could go to GreenwichHistory.org. That includes shopping online. Um, or you could call 203-869-6899. Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated and revised edition of an earlier Greenwich history book, 
that being titled Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Going through the year 1999, Greenwich Before 2000 was a project by the Greenwich Historical Society. It was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds Jr. He's another descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, and he and his family have made numerous philanthropic bequests that have advanced the preservation of Greenwich, Connecticut's history. On today's show, we're going to go back to the year 1949, and it goes as follows. Now, in January of 1949, the Round Hill Fire Company is organized, having received its charter three months earlier and joins the town fire department in the spring. On February 1st, 1949, the merry-go-round, quote-unquote, on Art Street, opens for elderly citizens. On March 15th, the town plan commission rezones the east side of Mason Street from family dwelling units to or family dwellings to businesses uh, in order to conform to the west side of Mason Street. On April in 1949, the Parks and Trees Division assumes maintenance of all 11 school grounds, which comes to over 100 acres. On May 1st, a 20-pound Revolutionary War cannonball is unearthed in the yard of the 1797 Benjamin Mead House on Cobb. And by the way, that house uh, is near the corner of Bible Street and Orchard Street. It's the saltbox-style one. If you uh, happen to go by, you'll see it there. On May 20th, the Village Gazette is established as a weekly newspaper serving Greenwich, particularly the eastern segment. On July 1st, the Health Department sets up a tuberculosis clinic to be operated by the Connecticut State Tuberculosis Commission. On July 20th, the Apex Watch Case Manufacturing Company opens its new $200,000 plant on Old Track Road to employ over 100 men and women. Let's see, on April, or excuse me, August 18th, Greenwich officially accepts the new Glenville Bridge over the Byram River from the state. And what else do we have here? Let's see. Oh, yes. Uh, in the um, in the fall, the Greenwich Water Company enlarges its Putnam Lake filter plant, bringing about a 50% increase in capacity. Uh, in November of, uh, of that year, Adams Garden, a moderate housing project for 72 families, opens in Old Greenwich, north of the Post Road. On December 5th, the Thermix Corporation is granted permission by the Planning and Zoning Commission of Appeals to use a 30-room mansion on King Street for an engineering office. The board believes that proximity to Westchester Airport renders the property undesirable for residential use. Hmm. On December 12th, the Greenwich Water Supply stands at 26% of capacity, and Converse Lake is tapped for the necessary additional water. Converse Lake, by the way, is located in Conyers Farm today. On December 6th, Roger Sherman Baldwin Park um, is the new name for the Cary Peninsula at the head of Greenwich Harbor, acquired by the town for $100,000 two years before. There is a chickenpox epidemic with 901 cases reported in Greenwich. Police Chief John M. Gleason is elected president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. 
The town nursing service becomes part of the health department after 20 years as a separate organization. The General Assembly allows Greenwich to abolish the sewer district system um, and create a single sewer system for the whole town, a sewer improvement fund and a sewer maintenance fund with more equitable allocations of cost will be established. And then finally, the General Assembly authorizes the selectmen to regulate mooring, anchoring, and speed of boats in Greenwich Harbor. Perhaps the most attractive construction material for homes in modern-day Greenwich today are made of brick. They're quite beautiful. You probably can imagine, um, you know, ivy growing up the sides of the um, of the brick sides of um, of homes, especially our larger uh, mansions and estates in in the town. But people have sometimes sometimes asked me, um, where and when was the first brick house uh, or brick building constructed in Greenwich? Well, I can answer that for you. This came from, or what I'm going to share with you is a um, a column that was published. I was the author of it. It was published in the Greenwich News, um, and the name of the column was Greenwich Notebook, a brick house, um, and it uh, dates from uh, December 3rd, 1986. That wasn't the uh, date of the brick house. That was the date of the, um, of the column, um, and it goes as follows. And again, this was written by me. If you could go back 100 years and be a Greenwich farmer out with your family on a Sunday afternoon drive... One of the attractions of the Coscob area would be the old Ephraim Mead homestead. On your journey past this place, you probably would have met an ancestor of mine named Isaac Howe Mead, son of Ephraim, tending his fields. What, may, what made to this homestead so very special was that it was the first brick house built in town. Erected in 1830, the homestead stood opposite the Mianus River on Indian Field Road. It was the only house on the farm which included most of the land north of Meads Point, including what is now Bruce Park, surrounded by picturesque woodlands and grassy meadows. In recalling fond memories and describing his contemporary impressions of the area, Judge Frederick A. Hubbard reflects for a moment in his book Other Days in Greenwich as follows. Quote, Along this lane, for the road was scarcely more, where this house stood, the oaks are very old and thrifty, and even in those days, artists find many a subject for their brush. Coscob Harbor and the Sound are in plain sight, and to the northwest, one could look across the fields over the treetops, now within the enclosure of Millbank, to the village with its tall church spire, that church spire, of course, being the Second Congregational Church. The Brick Homestead was a quote-unquote modern replacement of an old colonial-era home built by Ephraim's father. He was named Deliverance Mead. He was a French and Indian Wars veteran. His family and farm withstood many attacks by Tories and bandit cowboys during the Revolutionary War. Times were so bad that food was kept hidden. Family members made trips at night to the barn so as not to be detected. The bricks themselves in the new quote-unquote house were not made locally, but imported from the Netherlands. It is no small wonder that the Ephraim Mead house was a landmark and the talk of the town. Many people from as far away as Stamford and Portchester came to give a curious gaze at the house. 
Isaac Howe Mead was the only son with several sisters. After acquiring full ownership of the homestead, he lived many years on the farm. He, in turn, left several sons, most all of whom were distinguished in town affairs. His most famous son we know today was Spencer P. Mead, the author of Ye History of Ye Town of Greenwich and the History and Genealogy of the Mead Family. Picture, uh, and by the way, I have a picture of the, um, of the homestead posted at Greenwich, a town for all seasons.blogspot.com. William Finch, Jr., our distinguished town historian, this is back in 1986, and curator emeritus of the Greenwich Historical Society, tells me that Nathaniel Witherell owned this place for a little while and used it as quarters for a summer camp of underprivileged children from New York City. He would bring them to the homestead to enjoy the scenic views and the countryside that dominated the area years ago. Sadly, the brick house was sold to William Truesdale, the president of the Lackawanna Railroad. This attractive landmark was demolished in 1895 to make room for Mr. Truesdale's new home. And the brick homestead had been completed barely 65 years earlier. Mr. Truesdale's home was gone, and today the site is uh, the site of the brick homestead, which stood majestically facing toward the south in those days is occupied by several single-family homes on the northwest corner of Indian Field Road and Bruce Park Drive. And this would be at the, I guess, the eastern um, entrance to what we know today as Bruce Park. Many of you may know, of course, of Windigool. It was one of the um, uh, great estates uh, located in um, uh, in uh, Koskab. Uh, you can go visit the ruins if you um, if you want to. Um, unfortunately, the the house was demolished many years ago, but uh, the um, stone foundation still uh, survives, and uh, and all over in Koskab. Um A very very famous person uh, once owned that place, and his name was Maurice Wertheim. This is a story that dates from April 10, 1914, in the Greenwich News, and it says nearly killed at depot. Maurice Wertheim jumps for a moving train and slips beneath the car. How about that? Maurice Wertheim, the new owner of the former Seaton Place at Coscob, nearly lost his life at the Greenwich Depot Monday morning. He was late in arriving at the depot in his automobile and attempted to board the train as it was just pulling out. That's not a good idea, but anyway, all right. Uh, on with the story. He missed the step and fell on the track, striking the forward uh, track um, of the of the last car. With great presence of mind, he rolled off the track and clung closely to the edge of the platform until the rear truck passed. He then arose, shook himself, and rammed to the train, which had halted at the west end of the platform, the motorman having been alarmed by the commotion made by those who saw the man fall, and who believed he had been killed. Other than receiving a few bruises, Mr. Wertheim was uninjured, and he boarded the train, this time, in a proper manner. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, 
landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. This will be of particular interest to those of you who live in Riverside. Um, I have to admit that I'm rather curious about the location of um, of this place. Uh, maybe you will be able to help me out with this. This is from the Greenwich News, uh, dated April 17, 1908. And it's about a new residential section of the Riverside area of uh, Greenwich called Riverside Park. And it goes as follows. Riverside Park is a new residential section of Riverside, opened up by the Riverside Park Company. About a mile of road with gravel sidewalk had been built on the company's land, which was formerly the Ackerhausen Estate. By the way, that's spelled O-C-K-E-R-H-A-U-S-E-N. Ackerhausen, that's how I pronounce it. Um, And it makes a very pretty and attractive site from the railroad station. A large part of the road is built in the form of a circle around a large artificial lake, which has been which has made since last fall. Large lawns are laid out for the houses. From the lake, a road runs southwest, meeting the main road a few rods south of the railroad station. Another stretches westward. In all, there are about 25 acres in the company's hands. The Riverside Volunteer Police Force is the recently formed band of vigilantes organized in this section of the town to protect the property and lives from bandits who had been systematically robbing the houses. Every night, a band of these volunteers meet at the corner, and until late in the evening, there is always some member patrolling the streets. It has been suggested that a, quote, sheriff a sergeant, a plainclothes man, two detectives and, and two detectives and four patrolmen be appointed, but this has not yet been done. A lively lookout has been kept for all strangers, and all suspicious-looking characters are being followed until it is found out what is their business in the place. The vigilantes number a dozen or more. Since their organization, there have been comparatively small number of breaks. But for one unfortunate occurrence, the people of Riverside would believe that the vigilantes had put an end to burglary in the vicinity. This occurrence took place several nights ago and was pretty nearly deprived and <laughs> was pretty nearly deprived of the force of one of its most able and active members. The man in question stayed out late on a certain night, performing his duties as a member of the committee on the inspection of vacant barns and it was not until past midnight that he returned home. It was with a feeling of security that he went to bed and the sleep of the just. He felt that he had protected the neighborhood from burglars that night. He was awakened in the morning by the excited cries of the cook of the effect, uh, and there was nothing to eat for breakfast. Burglars had entered and cleared out the ice chest, The man declared then and there that he would stay at home and protect his own house instead of bothering to try to protect the whole neighborhood. It is hoped that hereafter he may be coaxed back to the force. 
A century ago, in early April 1923, a car was stolen. Thieves left it uh, in the road near the Byram garage, and the story goes as follows. While operating an automobile last Saturday night on the Boston Post Road, Harry Studwell of Portchester experienced some tire trouble and was obliged to stop his car alongside the road near the old Derby homestead and Byram Garage west of Greenwich. He noticed a Chandler touring car drawn up near him and two men were standing alongside of it. Not having an automobile jack, he asked the two men if they had one in their car to loan him. Quote, we will sell you a jack, unquote, replied one of the men, but have none to loan. Hmm. Mr. Studwell at once suspected that the machine operated by the pair had been stolen, and he reported the case to the Greenwich policeman, whom he chanced to meet later on the street in Greenwich. On Sunday morning, Mr. Mead, who, not me, who occupies the Derby house, telephoned the police that the Chandler car was still parked alongside the road, and policeman Joseph Royna had the car a 1922 model towed to a local garage. The the car bore Massachusetts markers and a driver's license in the car having the name of Adelbert W. Moreau, 29 Cumbria Street, Somerville, Massachusetts. The police in Somerville were notified by the Greenwich police, and it was later learned that the car, which belonged to Mr. Moreau, had been stolen from Somerville on March 13th. Hmm. To all appearances, something went wrong with the transmission on the car, and the two men had to abandon it. The car was locked, and whether or not the thieves intended to return later for it is not known. We also have this crime story from a century ago, dated March 30th, 1923. Stolen autos owned here. Over 30 stolen machines sold to Greenwichites by dealers. Oh dear. (laughs) It goes as follows. 15 Ford cars of various types owned by a number of citizens of the town, which have been taken over by the state police, were found to have been stolen from New York. Oh dear. Um, The article doesn't say that. That's just me interjecting. Sorry. A number of the machines were sold by the auto thieves to Harold Goldie of Bridgeport, who was recently held in $10,000 bail by the state for the Superior Court and a $75,000 federal bond. Well, that's pretty serious. He is alleged to have had some 50 stolen cars in his possession at the time of his arrest several months ago. Goldie sold a number of the cars to Dillon and Cap, second-hand dealers in Portchester and Greenwich, who are said to have had in their garage at least 21 cars, which had been stolen in this manner, which they sold in various persons, including a number in Greenwich. Some of the local men whose cars have been taken over by the state police are William C. Runge, William Talbot, William Bridge, Constable George Jones, James McKeever, Roy Landers, and J.R. Spencer. Also, Johansson Jensen, Arthur Downs, and John B. Hook, Mrs. I.N. Lewis, and Henry Welts. While the cars were taken over to be examined by or at a local garage, the present owners will be privileged to keep and use them until the rightful owners can be found. 
The Greenwich police have been cooperating with the state police and have located a number of the stolen cars. Sergeant James H. Fitzroy of the local police department has been working on the case with the state police for over a week past, and to him, a large share of the credit is due for re- for rounding up the several cars. Well, my friends, this 1908 crime story comes with a headline that was printed in, let's see, the Greenwich News on April 17 of that year, stating, quote-unquote, couldn't stop for a drink. And the crime story goes as follows. Jeremiah Jason was picked up on Greenwich Avenue at the late hour Tuesday night by Officer Tully. He was selling court plaster and was carrying a beautiful jug. He accosted several ladies and asked them to buy his wares. He told a beautiful, hard luck story to Judge Barnes in the borough court, and the judge only imposed a fine of a dollar in costs. Inasmuch as Jason was practically, quote, broke on broke, or broke, rather, this meant about a week in jail. Quote, say, judge, can you remit the sentence and I won't let it happen again? Quote, <laughs> later, the judge did remit the sentence. Sergeant Talbot told the man to gather himself together and to take the next trolley out of town. The man was indignant, asking, quote, can I even stop to get a drink? Unquote, he said, when the sergeant told him that he was too tart for words to tell it, he felt very much hurt. He coldly bid adieu and left with his injured air. Well, in early February 1907, there was a bold robbery, according to the headline in the downtown Greenwich area. The Boston store of R.E. Raymond, proprietor, was broken into during the blizzard last Monday night. It's hard to think about blizzards on a day like this, sorry. Um, and... Uh, about $500 worth of cons- goods stolen and a considerable amount more injured or destroyed. The entrance was apparently affected by removing a grating at one of the cellar windows and getting up into the store through a trap door in the floor. Once in the store, they began to carefully se- uh, careful selection of the most valuable goods to be found. They went through all of the gloves in the place, picking out the most expensive pairs and throwing the others about on the floor. They took 20 sweaters, $50 worth of silk handkerchiefs, ladies' silk collars, neckties, mint gloves, and 25 pairs of shoes. They must have driven a wagon up to the rear door and carted the goods away. The rapidly falling and drifting snow made it impossible to trace them. The borough police, that would be for the downtown Greenwich area, had much to contend with during the storm and made their rounds regularly, although somewhat behind time. The trolley track up and down the avenue, that would be Greenwich Avenue, was kept clear until almost midnight and consequently held less snow than the rest of the night, and the officers took the path of least resistance for the most part in order to go all around. It is probable that a close watch was kept by the burglars for the officers or any others who should pass the store. The store itself is a large one and is not kept lighted, 
and it would have been a wonder if anyone prowling about it in a, on a clear night had been discovered. Well, needless to say, in the early years of the 21st century that we are in now, um, China is very much in the news to, um, to be, <laughs> well, it is, it's true. Um, this is actually not necessarily um, a new phenomenon. Actually, a century ago, um, China was very much in the news. Um, here in Greenwich, this comes from the Greenwich News and Graphic, Friday, March 30th, 1923. Um, and this is in the, uh, let's see, the Greenwich News and Graphic. The headline is, Boys in China, Traveler Well-Known in Greenwich, Writes About Them. And the story goes as follows. Jesse C. Clark, who recently spoke at Assemblies High School and grade school students at Havemeyer, that would be the Havemeyer School off Greenwich Avenue, and to groups of boys at the YMCA, uh, that would be, of course, at the um, uh, corner of uh, East Putnam Avenue and, uh, and Mason Street, uh, has written to the, follow uh, the following interesting letters. Dear friend, after living in China for 10 years, I visited in 1922 a number of boys' departments in the United States and was pleased to see that American boys are so much interested in China and the Far East. It indicates a very healthy change since 10 years ago. Nearly every boy I talk with puts to me such questions as the following. What kind of government do they have in China now? What games do Chinese boys play? Do you like Chinese food? Can you eat with chopsticks? How did you ever learn the language? Do the Chinese still wear cues? Why do the Chinese boys wear dresses in the girls' pants? Hmm. Do the Chinese like foreigners? First, let me say that the Chinese are a most friendly, happy, and likable people, much like we Americans in some ways, but so much more polite and friendly than we are. Americans, when in China, are often surprised by gifts, by invitations to feasts, to weddings, to receptions, by interest shown in our personal comfort and welfare, etc. It is the hospitality of the people showing itself in an attempt to welcome us to their country as friendly representatives from the country of the flowery flag, as they often call the United States. Chinese who visit America upon their return have a great laugh with their friends over the great American dish chop suey, for it is quite unknown in China. That's true, by the way. Their food is delicious, far better than chop suey. In their feasts, they serve chickens, ducks, geese, fish of many kinds, shrimp, lobster, frogs, pork, etc. Also, many delicious vegetables, fruits, nuts, candies, teas, etc., their food is very tasty, and they have a much greater variety than we. Usually six or eight people eat at one, at one table. With them, in their ordinary meal, rice takes the place of our bread and potatoes, except in the north where they eat wheat bread, beans, millet, and a cheap grain called kaolyang, instead of the rice used in all the rest of China. Everybody drinks tea, and they drink it all day long except at meals. Every school and YMCA has a tea urn at the hallway or lobby. Every teacher, Y secretary, and businessman has a teapot on his desk, which is replenished hourly with kai shui, boiling water. 
There are many grades of tea, but none of them do they use sugar or milk. They drink it straight. In this country, we hear much of China's poverty and how the poor people suffer. It is true the majority are poor and illiterate, but not unhappy. They enjoy all the, the full of what they have and are always ready for a joke and a laugh. There are also many rich people in business or, or living in retirement. China is potentially very rich in natural resources and manpower, but rich and poor alike in China today are suffering from a corrupt government by military officials who, for the most part, care little for their country or their fellow men. The war read about in China is principally officials fighting each other with mercenaries for the spoils of office. Some officials are really ex-brigands who have become strong enough to control a certain position. They collect taxes, sell concessions, borrow money, and buy arms from foreign countries to keep themselves going. At the same time, there are thousands of splendid, able, educated men, many of them earnest Christians, who are serving their country in a very splendid way by quietly working for the development of a public opinion in favor of Christian ideals and standards. You may wonder, quote, what the YMCA can do to help in a situation like this, unquote. My answer is that the most valuable assistance which anyone uh, give is to help train boys and girls in this generation so that someday they will be able, as other generations have been, to force these corrupt officials out of office and make possible an honest progressive government. The Chinese Y has been for the last 25 years helping provide opportunity for practical leadership, experience for a large group of young men of rare ability and leadership, who will someday have a large share in writing China's ship of state. Those who help feed the victims of famine and war are doing a fine piece of service, and one that should be continued. But those who help to create um, unselfish Christian leadership for the future are helping to lay the foundations of a national life in China that will be no more subject to famine than we are. Isn't it fine that every why in America, as well as China, can really have a part in preparing for this better day? Have you ever realized that no matter what your life work is, it is going to be a vital concern to you what the Chinese people decide as to their form of government, their religion, their moral and social standards, their attitude toward militarism, the League of Nations, and toward us as a nation? The boys of China are alive to the situation and are studying the civilization of Europe and America with great earnestness to see if we have anything they need and can use as they are going through the processes of reconstruction of government, religion, commerce, industry, and in fact a revaluation of all their customs and attitudes inherited from the ancient leaders of their great civilization. It is commonly predicted now, by thoughtful students of world events, that the great civilization of the future will be around the Pacific. That means that China and the USA will be the two largest nations interested and together can dominate the situation. There will be war makers in the next generation as well as this. 
you boys of today must understand the Orientals and learn to know their strong points and be able to work with them. If the war makers, quote unquote, and dollar chasers, quote unquote, are to be curbed sufficiently to ensure international peace and friendship. A real sympathetic understanding and appreciation of the people of the Orient, such as we do not have today, is the necessary first step toward guaranteeing real-world brotherhood around the Pacific in the day when you boys of 1923 will be in control of our affairs at home and abroad. Get ready now. Read, study, think, discuss your ideas with others. Yours for broader and truer friendships, J.C. Park, New York, March 1st. This is a wedding story that I would like to share with you. It was published in the Greenwich News on March 30th, 1906, and it concerns a very famous um, uh, French uh, politician, uh, who had a wife from Greenwich, Connecticut, of all places. <laughs> How about that? The story goes as uh, follows. The New York Tribune says, quote, Senator Clemenceau, the Minister of the Interior of the new French cabinet, spent a number of years in America where he found a wife in the person of Miss Mary Plummer of Greenwich, Connecticut, the marriage being performed at the City Hall in New York by Mayor A. Oakley Hall. After obtaining his diploma as a doctor of medicine at Paris, he realized that his pronounced political opinions would, as long as Napoleon III remained upon the throne, inevitably interfere with his career in France by keeping him in prison. He was bitterly opposed to the Bonaparte dynasty, his animosity having been rendered acute by the arbitrary arrest of his father at Nantes, on the strength of a totally unfounded suspicion of being concerned in the Orsani attempt on the life of the emperor. The old man's arrest and the dramatic circumstances in connection therewith had the result of depriving his daughter of her reason, and her insanity naturally served to embitter her brother against the imperial government. So he came to this country in the early part of 1866, lived for a time on West 12th Street with an American friend, an artist of the name of William E. Marshall, and then became teacher of French in a girls' school at Greenwich, Connecticut, where he met his wife. While there are, while there are several children of this union, it was not a happy one. After living apart for a number of years, the senator and his wife finally were divorced, and Madame Clemenceau, who returned to America, is dead. The senator talks English without the slightest trace of a foreign accent, and so thoroughly acquainted himself with American life and American conditions while here that for years after his return to France, he was unable to continue to act as the or that he was able to continue to act as the American correspondent of the Temps, quote-unquote, and of other Paris newspapers, writing his letters which bore the date of New York at his home in the French metropolis. I may add that while in New York he received much kindness and courtesy of Horace Greeley, to whom he brought letters of introduction 
and for whom he did occasional work on the Tribune. And yes, Horace Greeley was very famous. Um, he was the uh, owner and publisher of the New York Herald uh, Tribune. As far as uh, where um, Senator Clemenceau um, uh, taught French and uh, and lived, it is my, I wasn't there, of course, I'm not that old, but uh, <laughs> it is my recollection that that house uh, uh, was uh, on Millbank Avenue, and it's very possible that that house still may be uh, there. It would be nice. I don't think, uh, I know that there have been a number of demolitions over the years of of homes on uh, on Millbank Avenue, and they have been replaced by larger, um, handsome uh, homes and, uh, and so forth. But um, I am fairly certain that the um, house that uh, that he lived in um, is still there. I'm going to uh, to look into this and I will uh, I will let you know. But again, that's another um, wedding uh, uh, wedding story, if you will, although it did not take place in Greenwich, still a very um, famous uh, French politician was married to a woman from Greenwich. Unfortunately, um, she passed away and we don't know what happened. But there you go. Well, back in April of 1914, a very extraordinary dinner was held at the Greenwich Country Club. Um, And there were several hundred prominent people who were expected to attend this and did so. Um, It was um, an interesting one, and it has to do, of course, with the fact that at that time in 1914, women were still not allowed to exercise the right to vote. So let me share this with you. It says this evening, the dinner of the Connecticut Men's League for Women Suffrage is to be held at the Greenwich Country Club. Mrs. Ernest Thompson Seaton is presiding over the arrangements at Greenwich, and it is through her courtesy that the country club throws its doors open to the men's league. Alfredo S.G. Taylor, the secretary of the league, is managing matters for the league. He has a large committee of invitation to assist him in the work, and according to present appearances, there will be between three and four hundred guests on that occasion. There are six speakers on the program, one for each of the five political parties, and Colonel Norris Osborne of New Haven for the press. The political speakers are the Honorable Thomas L. Riley, the Honorable John H. Light, Professor Yendel Henderson for the Progressives, Emil L. G. Hohenthal for the Prohibitionists, and William English Walling, that's spelled W-A-L-L-I-N-G, for the Socialists. I'll bet you didn't know that in Connecticut we had a Socialist Party. Well, we did. It is expected that a number of other gentlemen will also be ready with short speeches. The object of the dinner, as announced by the Invitation Committee, is, quote, to bring together in a pleasant and social way the men and women in Connecticut who are interested in woman suffrage, that they may exchange ideas, plan new activities, and rejoice together over the growing popularity of the great movement for which our men's league stands, unquote. Well, I'm going to tell you, my friends, it's a beautiful day. I hope that you go out there and enjoy it. 
And I want to thank you in that same spirit once again for tuning in to today's Tuesday, 4th of April, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast, as always, is posted, hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of Greenwich, Connecticut's 17th century founders. Our town has been known for generations as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut is a place that we're very proud of. It stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. We call it home, and I hope that you do too. The Greenwich in Town for All Seasons show podcast, as always, is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador and Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. You know, I love to get uh, mail from my listeners, and if you would like to be among them, please contact me at GreenwichTownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show, listen to past shows. There's no paywall there, by the way, and you can do that by going 24 hours a day, seven days a week at your leisure and pleasure to GreenwichTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is going to be scheduled for next Tuesday, the 11th of April, 2023. And to all of you, I am sincerely grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating and preserving Greenwich, Connecticut's history. I look forward to being with you next week. Please take care and enjoy your day today with all the beautiful sunshine and warm temperatures and many more days to come. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.